You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. In this series, The Gospel of Luke, Jesus for All, we walk through Luke's account of the life and ministry of Christ. I want to read our passage and then talk, uh, set it up a little bit and then pray for us. Um, so Luke chapter 12, verse 13 down to verse 21. The word says this, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide an inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentiful, plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God." So last week, Jesus helped us to reorient our fears. And as we continue in Luke 12, Jesus now turns to a very unpopular subject, especially in the church in America. And, and I'm the same way when I was sitting there in the pew. It's like, oh, he's either after my money or my possessions. What's, what's going to happen today with this passage, right? Um, and the thing is, is it's amazing that, that Jesus actually teaches about money and possessions quite frequently. Like if when he teaches about something often, it must be something that we struggle with or something that we get out of alignment or something that we forget. And that's why he brings it up quite frequently. In fact, in the book of Luke, Jesus talks about the subject just about as much as he talks about himself, which is quite interesting. Well, Jesus wants to begin to talk to us about money and our material possessions here starting at 12 and moving forward. So that's kind of what kind of governs the way I looked at this passage because he's going to come back to this idea of our possessions and our money over and over again over the next four or five chapters in Luke. So we're going to have plenty of opportunity to be uncomfortable about talking about money and giving our material possessions. Um, money and possessions must be important to our walk with Jesus because 11, count the 11 of, of Jesus' 39 parables is about money. And what we are to do with our money and our possessions. 11 out of 39. That means 28% of the time Jesus opened his mouth and maybe more. He was talking about money or possessions. So it's probably very important that we get this right in our life. That's why Jesus talks about it so much. Again, because we're going to be running into this topic quite often, it kind of decided the way that we're going to spend our time together today. And, and what we're going to spend our time together today on is actually looking at the heart issue. Because I think if we see the heart issue first, then as he talks about it over the coming weeks and months, we can go back and, and go back to this and say, okay, what is he saying about this? I can go back to the heart issue and fix whatever he might be saying or teaching us to do or be. And a lot of times, it's just asking us to be something. Be generous, right? It's, he's, he's not asking us to, eat, to be something. 
Now, just, be, you know, just to show you that I'm not randomly picking something, what I'm picking is actually in the text. The heart issue um, behind um, how we think about, feel about, and use our money and possessions is covetedness. Um, it's already been mentioned by Nate in, in many different ways, but uh, Jesus sends us this warning today, and we find it in verse 15, and he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetedness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You know, it's interesting, as you look at the different generations and as you study them or just try to learn how different people think and how they were grown up, it's like less and less and less this possession thing, as the generations come, it's less important, right? So the baby boomers who were raised by those that went through the Depression, possessions was huge, and then they gave that to the Gen Xers, and the Gen Xers kind of lived in, in this quasi way of showing love by buying things for people, and then the millennials come, and it's like, no, I want to reject the way that they are seeing material possessions, and, and I, I don't really need a, a whole lot of things. I really want to go and do things and help the world and help other people, and now as you look at the Gen Zers, those that are in high school and those that are in college now, they're really really about experience. They want to do experiences. So that's maybe where they're going to get tripped up with what Jesus is going to talk about covetedness, where they, they want to travel, they want to go on trips, they want to do things such as that, where the possession thing is no big deal. They don't need the big houses. They, they've seen what all that is, but so it's interesting. So as we're sitting here and we have all four generations sitting in this room today, maybe you're like, oh, I don't, I don't care for a big house. I don't care for the possessions. I don't care about some of the things that I'm going to use here to try to see and press in on our hearts. But there's something that we covet. We covet all the time. In fact, it's like one of the biggest things that we struggle with. We just need somebody else to help us to dig down a little bit and, and see it. And the thing is, is the beautiful thing, and that's why we talk about sin, and that's why we talk about repentance so much, is if you see your sin, you can repent of it. And once you repent of it, you get free of it, and joy and peace and a flourishing life comes. Nobody escapes the sin. You will not be able to say, wish so-and-so was here to hear this sermon today. It's for you and it's for me. Again, a very hard one for me to deal with all week long. So why should I listen today? Because of this. And I would imagine if, if I ask and did a poll, this is one of the things that, that, that why anxiety is so high and, and the busyness of life is, is everyone's just trying to find contentment. So why should you listen today? Because true contentment only comes when we obey the command, thou shalt not covet. That is the very root, the very dig down. If you dig down deep enough into your heart, your anxiousness and your, the reason why you are not content, one of them, there could be many, obviously, if you're not walking with the sovereignty of God, that'll be another big one. But one of the big ones is your coveting. As Nate was starting to, to lay out, as he often does, I never send him my notes, but he preaches my sermon before I preach it, usually every Sunday. He, he, was, just, he was unpacking the things that, like, do you wish something was better? Do you wish you had more? Do you wish, do you wish, do you wish? But true contentment comes whenever we dig down, find this sin, eradicate it, replace it with what the gospel says and what Jesus has done for us. And then we are content. 
I'm not saying that, that anything can happen to us and we don't react to it or we're sad or we're suffering. I'm not saying all that. I'm saying true contentment. Where, yeah, we can walk through a hard time, and yes, we might be sad because the, the things that are happening, or, or we might be mad, or we might be aggravated, or whatever it is, but we can walk through it with our eyes on Christ and truly be content as we walk through it. Much of what we read in Paul, especially in Philippians, right? He's in prison saying all these things. And he's sitting there saying, well, what should I do? Should I go, or should I stay? Well, I'll stay because it's better for you. And he's saying that all from prison. And he was content with whatever God had for him. Interesting that next week, coming off of this week, if you look down in your Bible, you'll see probably the title of most every single one of your Bibles says what? Do not be anxious. Contentment, covetousness, it goes together. So here's the game plan for today. We are going to unpack what it means to covet. That won't be very pleasant, I know. And then we're going to look at our passage and ask three questions of our passage. Why the request, why the refusal, and why the rebuke? So let me pray, and we'll get into this. Father, again, I, I know this is going to be um, just one of those messages where, like, there's not a, a ton of, of um, feel joys and, and good, good feelings about this, Lord, that you are really going to, to step in and, and look at our hearts. But Lord, you do so because you love us to show us our hearts so that we may turn to you. Lord, because that's where true joy is going to be found, true happiness in a flourishing life, is walking in step in line with what your word says and what you are teaching us. And Lord, I pray that you will help us to do that today. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we, many of you know, I would think all of you know, that thou shalt not covet is the Tenth Commandment. It's one of the laws, one of the rules that God has given us to, to live by. Yes, the Ten Commandments are valid for today. Jesus, here he is reaffirming this. Thou shalt not covet. He's saying it right here in this passage. So in Exodus 20:17, we read this. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. And then we read that and we're like, oh, we'll just throw half of that out because my neighbor don't have donkeys and they don't have servants and different things like that. But what if we pause and read it a little bit slower? What if we read it like this? You shall not covet your neighbor's house. They sure do have a lot of nice stuff. I'm tired of living in this neighborhood. We live in a dump. It must be nice to decorate like that. I mean, I, honestly, let's, let's just be honest. The only reason why MTV cribs or lifestyles of the rich and famous exist is because we sit and covet those things. So we'll sit on, on, on a day and, and for a half hour to an hour, we'll watch and covet what these other people have. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Wow, she sure is beautiful. I wish I married someone like her. Look at her husband. He's always so friendly. He's good with the children. He helps around the house. He actually fixes things instead of just breaking them. Why am I stuck with my husband when there are many other men out there? Or his servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey. Man, my car is a piece of junk. It's not fair my friends get to take great vacations. We're lucky just to go to grandma's house. Why am I stuck in this loser job? 
I wish my kids were more like their kids or anything that is your neighbor's. I wish I could be smart like her. My life would be so much better if I looked like her. Why can't I run, jump, throw, or be as strong as my friend? Why don't I have as many followers on social media as my neighbor? Why is everything in my life hard when everything for everyone else is so easy? See, when you stop and look at them through the lens that we live today, you can see that it does match up. And that this message isn't for someone that should have come and heard it today. It's for all of us. Now, don't hear this. There's nothing, there's nothing necessarily wrong with noticing what other people have. But most of us don't stop at notice so that we can give thanks to God for the blessing to others. What we do is we notice and just stop being thankful for what God has given us. And that's when we step into coveting. And that's when we step into sin. It's okay to notice what God's given other people. But whenever you're saying, oh, you know, well, I wish I had that, I wish I had that, what you're truly saying to God is, hey, you didn't give me enough. You didn't give me enough. So what is exactly is coveting? So let's, again, start with what it's not. It's not the same as having desires. The Tenth Commandment does not prohibit every kind of longing, want, or thought of having something nice or better. Jesus knew what it was to be hungry. He longed for food. He wanted food. While in the wilderness, he knew what it was to be tempted. In Gethsemane, he knew what it was to feel abandoned and alone. While on the cross, he knew what it was to be thirsty. So those desires are not wrong. He knew what it was to suffer and to ask God, is there some other way? He knew that. He experienced that. He walked the shoes in our place. Yet in all of this, he never broke the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. The Bible even commends desires that are in proper places. Sarah and Hannah's desire for children is a good desire. Proverbs encourage us to work hard to improve our lot in life. So desiring some kind of domestic or financial advancement is, isn't automatically wrong. It's not automatically wrong. Paul, as I was kind of fleshing out Philippians, he desires to go to be with Christ. Clearly, the 10th commandment does not mean to make us unfeeling creatures without hopes or dreams or appropriate ambitions. That's not what it's saying. I mean, that kind of saying, those kind of thinking, that kind of thinking is more Buddhist than it is Christian. Where Buddhists teach to get rid of all your desires, which is absolutely impossible because you're a human being. So if coveting is not the desire itself, then what is it? What makes coveting such a serious sin? I will give two answers, and you know, I got these answers um, really good, flushed out, done in Kevin DeYoung's book on the Ten Commandments. And, and the first answer to that is when we covet, we want for ourselves what belongs to someone else. I, I'm sure that that's, yep, yeah, I, I understand that. That's, that's no problem, Joe. But it's a desire. It's more than thinking. It's more than thinking it would be great to have a nice house or I'd like to have a, a, a better job. Coveting longs for someone else's stuff to be your stuff. One way of looking at things is to see the Tenth Commandment as an internalization of the Eighth Commandment. Just as adultery of the heart is lust and murder of the heart is hatred, so theft is the heart of covetousness. 
you're desiring to want something else. James 4, 2 says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Right? It's more than thinking, it's a desire. Desire that that stuff wants, I need, I need to have that. That needs to be mine for me to be happy. When Achan stole some of the devoted things from Ai, he first coveted them, and then he took them. See, a lot of times we know so much and still act differently than what we know. Thinking cannot only be the thing that we're after. It has to be about our desires. Because our desires rule what we do all day long, don't they? Stop and think about it. Just be honest with yourself. <laughs> How many things that you would say like, I wish I didn't do that. You know that you should not do that. And tomorrow you'll get up and do that. That's because your desire has not changed. Yes, we need to know how to think biblically, but not until your desires change will your behavior ever change. Every single one of us knows that. Every single one of us knows there's things that we do that are not good for us, but we still do them because that's where our desire is at. So in this coveting, when we long for someone else's stuff to be our stuff, we are breaking the second great commandment. This is, this is how he breaks it up. If you look at, you know, love God, love your neighbor. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Coveting fails to love your neighbor as yourself. When we're covetous, we think of what it is, what is good for us. That's what we're thinking. At that moment, or whatever we're coveting, whatever we're desiring, that we don't have, and we're saying that, hey, it's, I need that. I want that. What would make me happy? What would make my life better, regardless how others are affected? A, a simple illustration of this is when a child does not get what he wants, and the, the words shortly follow, and every one of us has been there, because everybody, every one of us has been two years old at some time, point in time. It's not fair, right? It's not fair. And unfortunately, some of our society has picked up on that. It's not fair. Coveting is not just saying I would like something. That can be fine. We all have wishes. We all have lists. Coveting goes further and says, why did you get that? I wanted it. I am angry because you are happy, and I'd be happier if we would trade places. See, coveting wants what other people have. That's the first way in which it's sinful. The second way, and the second way is, is what we see in, in our Scripture today. We covet when our desires leads to or is an expression of discontentment. It's the way that we're trying to find contentment. We see that in this gentleman who had an abundance of crops or abundance of things, and, and what is he going to do? Well, I'm going to big, build bigger buildings. I'm going to build bigger buildings. When we covet, we don't believe that God is big enough to help us or good enough to care. Our discontentment is an expression of how much more we think God owes us. 
The Ten Commandments starts with, I am the Lord your God, have no other gods before me, and ends with, do not covet. Do not let anything else capture your gaze and affections ahead of me. And really simply put, the second one, the second answer, coveting is simply idolatry. It says I can't live without that person, the place, or possession. It makes a, a God out of desires. So let me just give some diagnostic question before we turn to see what Jesus teaches about true contentment. You might be coveting if you've hurt others in order to get more for yourself. You might be coveting if you're preoccupied with making and accumulating more. This is obviously the rich fool's problem in our passage today. You might be coveting if you're unwilling to give up what you already have. You might be coveting if you're frequently grumbling about your house, your spouse, the quality or quantity of your possessions and the general state of your life. Here's the best, and this just comes from the x-ray questions that we have for our D groups, and it's real simple. If I only had blank, I would finally be happy. If I only had blank, I would finally be happy. And Jesus said, not Joe, Jesus said, Take care and be on guard against all covetedness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Let's take a look at the circumstances that prompted Jesus to make this statement. If you remember from last week, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. But there are literally thousands of people around. They're actually stumbling over each other. So everywhere Jesus taught, there's always people overhearing and because what I said before, Jesus talks a lot about possessions and money, obviously people hear those teachings. So someone from the crowd comes to him with a request. He says this, someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Why the request? Why would this man come to Jesus? Well, it's found sort of in general terms in the what he called Jesus. He called Jesus his teacher. He said, Teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. A general answer, again, is many people would take these issues to their rabbi for him to apply the biblical law to it and then judge the case. That's how it would happen back then. But this cannot be the only reason because Jesus is not part of the Sanhedrin. He was not one of the trained, accredited rabbis who would sit in the temple courts and would adjudicate questions and issues in civil cases and so forth. But see, this man has been listening to Jesus, maybe in different contexts, maybe in different places. And he hears Jesus talks about possessions and money quite often. Jesus was not part of the system, so why was he being asked? Why was he being asked? And I, I think, and others think that it's because this man has just overheard Jesus talk about money quite often. And then the general idea that they usually would take these matters to their rabbi to apply biblical law in order to settle the dispute, if there is a dispute. 
kind of like you sitting there today as I was walking through covetousness thinking of someone else who needs to hear this sermon. So this is the request. But Jesus refuses. We see that in verse 14. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? Why the refusal? He had the request, now we have a refusal. Well, it's because Jesus was on mission. He was very clear and very set on his mission. He knew his calling. He knew what he was there to do. One day he would stand in judgment over everyone for everything, yes, but the day for judgment has not yet come. In his earthly ministry, it was not his calling to resolve this dispute. Another reason is found in the Greek word for arbitrator, which means one who divides. Jesus did not come to divide your possessions. Jesus came to divide your life. To divide your life. When Jesus says, come and follow me, he says to leave everything behind. Jesus is saying, if you come to me asking me to divide your inheritance before you ask me to divide your life, or if you come to me asking for anything before you have given me your everything, you don't understand who I am. You don't understand why I'm here. You don't understand what I'm calling you to. And later on in, in the book of Luke, he's going to, actually in this chapter, he's going to talk about dividing our lives. He's saying, you, you don't know what I'm appointed to do. You don't understand my mission. And Jesus' mission is to tell us what life is. This is where we find life. He is the life. Jesus' job is to show you what life really consists of, and it's not about our possessions. And he goes on to rebuke the man. So we had the request, we had the refusal, now we had the rebuke. Verse 16, he says, And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produces plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for, my, for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Do you see the sin of covenantness playing out here? Do you see this man not loving his neighbor? Instead of building bigger barns, why not take the excess that God gave him to help his neighbor? Do you see this man not loving God? Where is this man finding his contentment? It's not in God. It's in bigger barns, in his stuff. He says, after I big these, build these bigger barns and I fill it with all this stuff, what does he say? He says, I will relax, drink, and be merry. I will be content because I have bigger barns full with a bunch of stuff. But Jesus goes on. But God said to him, fool. This night your soul was required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? 
So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. I know this is a parable, but it is Jesus, God, speaking the parable. So let's just pause for a second and see this. If you live like this man in the parable, the God of the universe, the God who created everything and sustains everything, has a message for you. You are a fool. That's what he says. You are a fool. A fool in the Bible is somebody who's not thinking, somebody who's out of touch with reality. There's also a spiritual aspect because in the Bible, foolishness is not the absence of mental equipment, like mental thinking. It's the presence of an outlook that hates God's definition of reality. What does that look like for us? It's, okay, God designed things, made things, gave us the word so that we can see how we are to act, interact, and live. And we're saying, I don't like that. I'm doing it my way. I don't care how you designed it. I don't care what your word says. I'm doing it my way. That's what he's saying here when he calls us a fool. One day you will take your last breath and everything that you work to have and all that you have, put your hope in and everything that was given, your contentment will be gone. It'll be somebody else's. Or it'll go to the landfill. Or it'll go in the garage sale or a storage unit. It'll be gone. You will be standing before God on judgment day and the only thing that can help you then is Jesus. Nothing in this world will help you. Only Jesus. And that's why he's our treasure. That's why he is supremely important. That's quite a rebuke. But Jesus is not rebuke without giving hope. Providing a way out. How do we fight the sin of covetedness? How do we not become fools? Where do we find true contentment? Jesus says it at the very end. He says it in the negative, but I think it's right for us to turn it into the positive. And at the very end of this passage, he says, be rich toward God. Be rich toward God. Well, what in the world does that mean? Well, I read it for you this morning. Matthew 6, 19 through 20. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys nor thieves do not break in and steal. Being rich towards God is laying treasures for yourself up in heaven. And if you stop and think about it, let's just think logically about this. There's only one thing that you can see today that might be sitting beside you today that could be in heaven with us. And that is people. How do you lay up treasures for yourself in heaven? Well, it's not spending all your time, effort, and energy in making more money or having more possessions. 
It is spending your time, energy, and effort into people. Because people are the only things that is going to heaven. They're the only thing that lasts forever. What is more important to you? Your possessions or your relationships? Your possessions or your relationships? We fight the sin of covenantness. We are not foolish and we find true contentment when we invest our lives into other people. When we make room in our lives for other people. When we get up each day and say, how can I go and serve somebody else? That's when you'll find true contentment. That's where it is found. And as we do that, as we get up every day through the power of the Holy Spirit, we will never do that unless we are in the Word, we are walking by the Spirit, and we get up each day and we say, how can I bless somebody? Yes, I still have to take care of the kids. Yes, I still have to go to work. Yes, I still have to go to school. Yes, I still have to do these things living in this world. But as I go, as we go make disciples, how can I invest in somebody? How can I bless somebody? How can I encourage somebody? How can I add value to somebody's life today? And you're like, well, I don't know how I could do it. Yes, you, you can. If you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you and you know the words of the Bible, you can encourage, you can, you can add tons of value to people all around you. You can do that. God has called you to do that. You will have so much joy at the end of the day that you're like, well, why didn't I try this earlier? Well, today's a good day to start, right? What is more important to you, your possessions or your relationships? Again, we find it when we invest in people. And what do we do with our possessions and our money? Because we do have that. Some of it we need. We need those things, absolutely. Well, we, we invest our money and our possessions to further his kingdom. Not to build us bigger barns. But how can we invest to build his kingdom? And, and that can look in many different ways. That can look in many, many different ways. And why? Why would we do this? Why would we give ourselves? Why, would, why was it this idea that our passage is saying that this man was called a fool because he filled his barns, and it seems like the gospel is counterintuitive, which is always counterintuitive, by the way, if you haven't figured that one out. The, the gospel says, no, you empty yourself in order to be content. To be content. You empty yourself. Why would that be? Well, Jesus chose us. He did it for us. It's exactly what our Savior did for us. He emptied himself. The rich fool is the person who stores up, but Jesus Christ on the cross to the world around us became the ultimate fool. This is why in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Jesus Christ has proved it. 
If you empty yourself. When he went to the cross, he won through losing. They were cheering. They thought they won. No, he won. He was filled through emptying. He got glory by emptying himself of his glory. He is proof that this is where true contentment is found. Here's a man in sandals. Here's a man without a home. Here's a man who had no money. Here's a man who had no organization. Here's a man who had no publicity. Nobody knew him on social media. But yet today, this very day, there is not another person that's ever walked this planet that's more influential than Jesus Christ. Period. Second Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake and my sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. All the other religions of the world say, store up, do your good deeds, present them to your God. Christianity says, no, 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 no. If you want to, if you want to unite with Christ and be Christians, we have to do the, exactly what Jesus did. If you go to God and say, I am full, he'll say, you're empty. But if you go to God and say, I am empty, he will say, I will now fill you. If you come to God and say, I have nothing. I have nothing that can merit your salvation. I am weak. I don't deserve it. But God says, come on in. I am gentle and lowly. Come on in. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Thankfully, Jesus didn't shake his fist at God the Father and say, it is not fair. Thankfully, Jesus did not covet all the others, what others had. He freely emptied himself. And why did he do this? For the joy set before him. For you, beloved. For you. Charles Spurgeon says, one way you know that Jesus Christ is precious to you is that nothing else is. One way that you know that Jesus Christ is precious to you is that nothing else is. True contentment is not found in bigger barns. True contentment will not come when only I get blank. True contentment is found when you are rich towards God. And that is found in living a life for others and not for yourself. There is where we find true contentment. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I know that Jesus is, whenever you have a passage that, that declares something to be foolish, it's going to be a hard message. But Lord, there's good news. You, you love us, you care for us, that you have done so much for us. You have patience, you give us grace. So today, maybe it's just a corrective. Maybe we, 
we see and we hear today and we receive and we correct some things. We're not going to correct it all, but thank God for progressive sanctification, Lord, that you are patient with us and you are changing us from one glory to another. Striving and looking for the one day where the presence of sin will not exist. But Lord, for us today, but I pray that we see that it is about emptying. It is about giving ourselves. It's not about building bigger barns. That's where true contentment lies. That's where a flourishing life comes from. Lord, I pray that you would challenge us through your spirit as you've challenged us with your word. Lord, to, to invest into others because that's the treasures that we lay up in heaven. It's the souls that we invest in. It's the souls that we give our lives to. We can't do that without the help of the Holy Spirit in your word. Lord, I pray if there's anybody here who maybe he's like, oh man, that's all I've ever trusted in was myself and my possessions. Lord, I, I pray that they will see that that's going to fail them. Lord, that your spirit has shown them that, that you've given them ears to hear and eyes to see who you are. And Lord, I pray that you have changed their hearts and they will repent and turn and trust in you. Lord, for all of us, we need to do that as we get ready to take communion. Lord, I ask that you would help us do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. To learn more about our church, visit our website at mountaincty.church. Thanks again, and may the Lord bless your week.